So raise your hand if you need one, and we'll get one into your hands. And if you don't have your own Bible, we'd love you to swing through the info table on your way out and get a Bible to, uh, to take them with you. So with all those Bibles that you have, or your electronic Bibles, or whatever you're using, turn to Matthew chapter 24. This morning we're going to look at the big chunk in the middle, verses 9 through 31, as Jesus continues with his disciples in this Olivet Discourse. Remember, there they were atop the Mount of Olives, and he's talking to them about the things that would be coming in the future. And he's giving them, of course, he's giving to us as well, this kind of a panorama of all of human history that would come. And I think it's important as we continue looking at this panorama that we first take just a few minutes and look at what is the backbone of Bible prophecy. It's an outline of God's plan for his people, the Jews, it was given to the prophet Daniel, and it was recorded for us in Daniel chapter 9. It's what you may have heard called Daniel's 70-week prophecy. You can turn to Daniel 9 if you want. It's just a few books to the left of Matthew, but I'll have the verses from Daniel up on... Uh, on the title, and my hope, I mean on the, the screens. So my hope is that it, this, looking at Daniel chapter 9, at what is Daniel's 70th week, right, the tribulation period, which is what we're talking about today, I hope that Daniel chapter 9 is going to give us some context so that we can really start to understand what is our text for the morning. It's one of our text today, Matthew chapter 24, this portion, I believe, is one of the most misunderstood, misinterpreted texts of all of the Bible. But my hope is that as we let Scripture interpret Scripture, we're going to find that our text today, Matthew 24, is actually a text full of uh, great encouragement. And it's a text full of great insight to the heart of God and, and the things that are to come just the way that Jesus intended it to be. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to, uh, to bless our time. Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord, even the complex, difficult things that are uh, in there, Lord, for us to understand. And yet we thank you that you've given us other scripture that we can use to interpret, Lord, and to shed light. And we pray that your spirit would help us to do that today. Lord, we pray for open ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the prophet Daniel, Daniel ministered to the Jews, as you guys know, during the time of their captivity by Babylon. And as that captivity was drawing to a close, Daniel went to prayer seeking out the Lord for what was the next step? What was the Lord's plan for his people after this? And he received this prophecy from the Lord through the angel Gabriel in response. And again, it's Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. In Daniel chapter 9, in verse 24, it says this, that 70 weeks, or literally seven-year periods, there will be 77-year periods that are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That's pretty comprehensive, right? So the Lord says to Daniel that from that point, there would be 77-year periods as the Lord deals with Israel and her sins, including the coming sin 
of the rejection of Jesus, right? And also to deal with Jesus' return, his anointing as their Messiah. Now watch, he's going to give us some, a little bit of detail about these seven-year periods. In verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which was in ruins at that point, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So after their return from captivity in Babylon, it would take seven weeks or 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem, to reestablish worship there. And we see exactly that in the historical accounts of Ezra and book of Nehemiah. Verse 26, it says, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So 62 weeks later, or precisely 434 years to the day, as we've talked about, we've seen it documented, that's when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, right, presenting himself on Palm Sunday as their Messiah. And yet it says there that he would be cut off. Right? He'd be crucified, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And that was the event we've talked about, which kind of stopped the prophetic clock, if you will. That's the event because of which the Jews now have been set aside. And as the Lord turns now to work instead, for the time being, through this new organism that he was going to birth called the church. The rest of verse 26 says that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. So this is that event we've talked about so many times. This is that destruction of Jerusalem that occurred in AD 70 by the Romans, who, interestingly, Gabriel says here, are the people of this ruler who is to come. We see there in that verse that the temple is going to remain desolate, it says, until the end. And that's precisely what we see today. Now, if you've been keeping track of our 70 weeks of this 70-week prophecy, you see we had seven weeks, then another 62 weeks, which means we have a total of 69 weeks that were completed before that prophetic clock was paused. So that means that we have one more week. We have one more seven-year period which we anticipate to come in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. And this is the period, right? That is the week that Jesus is going to describe for us in the rest of his teaching this morning. And it's also what was discussed in the very final verse of Daniel's prophecy. In Daniel 9.27, he says, Then he, or that coming ruler, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, we've yet to see any kind of historical fulfillment of this part of the prophecy. And so we can conclude that all of this is yet to come. So this seven-year period, this 70th final week, begins as some sort of a rising world ruler will come on the scene and make a seven-year peace treaty with Israel and others. 
So this ruler will be charismatic and persuasive and impressive and intellectual. He'll be a skilled orator, and the scriptures call him the Antichrist. And he is going to capture the attention of the entire world. And he's going to appear to be her friend and her protector, right, for Israel. And yet he's going to seem to diffuse all of the problems that are in the Middle East, even working out some sort of a deal wherein the Jews can rebuild their temple on the currently Islamic-controlled Temple Mount, They're going to rebuild their temple. They're going to be able to restart their sacrifices, which is something today that they are working to try to do. But look what it says in the rest of verse 27. In the middle of the week, right? So in the middle of that seven years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out. On the desolate. So, in spite of these promises, the Antichrist is going to break his covenant with Israel three and a half years into that seven year treaty. And what we're going to see is that Israel's newfound protector will now become their very worst persecutor. That's the time period that Jesus is going to detail for us below. So we've got now some background. We've got the context of this background of Bible prophecy. It's in Daniel 70 weeks. Now we're going to jump back in with Jesus. Remember in verses 4 through 8, he outlined for us what would be kind of the general conditions of the world from the time of his ascension until that time just before he returns. We talked about the fact in painful detail, I know, that it was going to be an unsettled time where we were going to watch and we were going to witness as the world systematically begins to unravel on every level. We we talked about it destabilizing spiritually and politically and materially and physically. We talked about the fact that this is the time that we're living in right now. And that all of these things, Jesus said, are the beginning of sorrows. Right? They're the birth pangs or the labor pains, the contractions that we can expect. These things are going to increase both in intensity and in frequency as we approach the end of time. So we see in verse 9 of Matthew 24, picking up in our text today, Jesus says, then. So notice just the first word of verse 9, then. It's our very first time word. He says, then, after that season of the beginning of sorrows, something different is going to follow. Now, many Bible students believe that it's here in verse 9 that these verses mark the beginning of that final seven-year period. Daniel's 70th week, also known as the tribulation. It's this time that God is going to bring an end to the course of of human history and that specifically here in verses 9 through 14 Jesus is going to talk to us about the things that would characterize the first three and a half years of the tribulation so in verse 9 he says that then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all uh, by all nations for my name's sake So in spite of all these treaties that are in place and these promises of protection, we know that this satanically powered leader secretly 
is seeking after the destruction of the Jews, and of course, anyone at that point who comes to faith and names the name of Jesus. And so we're going to see that widespread persecution of anyone of faith will begin. Now notice, Jesus says the persecution is going to be for his name's sake. And I believe this is important because this is how we know that he's talking about persecution that's directed specifically against tribulation saints or anyone who comes to faith in him during this time. Collectively, the, the nations are going to going to conduct a bitter, like a hate campaign, if you will, against anyone who's true to Jesus instead of demonstrating their allegiance to this one world ruler, the Antichrist. And even today, we can see that there are systems and there's a, a mindset that's moving into position globally that would really enable this kind of persecution to take place on a global scale. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus says, Watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. So not only will these believers be tried in religious and civil courts, also opposed by the apostate Jews of the time, but many of them will be martyred because they refuse to recant. Now, of course, as with everything we looked at last week, we've seen this kind of testing, right, occupied, you know, it's happened during periods all throughout the history of the Christian church. And yet the scriptures seem to indicate yet another level of systematic worldwide persecution against believers. Right, faithful believers experiencing a time of great personal testing during this beginning part of the tribulation. Now, ultimately, we're going to see that the Antichrist is going to set himself up to be God and demand to be worshipped. So it makes perfect sense that during this initial phase of his rise to power, after this successful negotiation bringing peace to the Middle East, that we would increasingly see him start to weaponize this already present false religious system, you know, to stomp out what he knows is the voice of truth spoken by believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says that many will be offended, will betray one another, they'll hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So notice, it's not just believers who are going to undergo times of testing and trial. But in these verses, we see that the overall conditions of the world at this time are going to be unbearable because the society and the whole planet is going to start to quickly deteriorate into worldwide chaos. And it's not just going to happen in that kind of geopolitical arena, but in the personal arena as well. Jesus says that people who were once closest to each other are going to betray one another. Right? Division in marriages and homes and families. Right, Nations are torn apart because of this kind of divided 
loyalty. He says there's going to be a great falling away. It's the literal translation of that word offended, that many people would fall away from the faith because of the pressure. He says lawlessness is going to abound. And the sense there in the language is that even the the law enforcement agencies are not going to be able to keep the peace because there's going to be this kind of exponential acceleration of persecutions and murders and crime. Other translations render that that sin will be rampant everywhere or there will be a multiplication of wickedness. So there's this general deterioration of society, a complete disregard for anything that's right and anything that's good, as Jesus says, love itself is going to start to wane. Now, I don't know about you, but as I consider that, this is a graphic and a pretty horrifying picture of a a world that's completely devoid of the influence of God. A world that's been left exclusively under the control of our own sinful human nature and Satan's evil and pervasive influence, which will at that point be ultimately unchecked. And most Bible students believe that there's one clear reason for this inevitable and incredibly rapid decline. And that's because the Holy Spirit's influence in the world, as he's currently working through the church, will no longer be in operation because the church will have been removed from the earth at the rapture just before the beginning of this period. So if that word rapture is new to you, Paul talks about this event in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says that there's coming a time when the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. In fact, Paul tells us that it's the removal of the church which is going to allow for the Antichrist to come to power in the first place. When he writes to the Thessalonians the second time, he describes these details for this church about the things that pertain to the church in the end time scenario. These people thought that they had missed the coming of Jesus for the church before the final return of the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, or the second coming, will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself about all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. He who now restrains is the Holy Spirit. 
as he works through the church as a preserving force within this world and within society. And the Bible says he's going to continue to restrain and he's going to continue to contain this revelation of the Antichrist and that full-blown release of satanic influence until he's removed when the church is removed. So the Antichrist can't be fully revealed until this restrainer is taken out of the way, but then Satan will be free to reveal his masterpiece, the Antichrist. So with that in mind, we believe that the logical place for that to occur, to that to occur is right here between verses 8 and 9. And yet, interestingly, Jesus doesn't even mention it. But there's a reason for that. See, in his letter to the church to, at Corinth, Paul calls the rapture a mystery, right? A hidden truth. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And so the, the teaching here about this coming event of the rapture isn't introduced here in this great prophetic discourse in Matthew because it was still a hidden mystery. It didn't pertain to the people that Jesus was talking to in the Olivet Discourse. It was a, a mystery, of course, not to Jesus, but to men at that time. We know that there's no set time for it to happen. There's no other prophecy that still needs to occur before the rapture. And in fact, it's the rapture which we believe is the very next event in the whole prophetic process that's going to start help to start uh, sort of restart that prophetic clock, allowing for that rocket-like rise to power of the Antichrist. He's going to be thrust into that place of prominence as he offers this solution for world peace, right? He's going to, going to have this unheard of ability to broker this agreement between Israel and her lifelong enemies. Maybe even he's going to have the most rational, reasonable, calming explanation to the sudden disappearance of millions of Christians worldwide. Now, I realize that this sounds like the plot to some epic film, right? Maybe starring Kirk Cameron or even Nicolas Cage, right? But you know, they say that truth is stranger than fiction, amen? And this is a truth that's taken right here from the pages of the scriptures. Now, I know there's a lot to digest here. There's a lot to understand prophetically. And yet, even more importantly, I think that there's a word of encouragement here for us as the church, and absolutely, we take comfort in the promises that we're going to be removed at the rapture before this whole period of tribulation begins. Right? Paul said, again, to the church at Thessalonica that God did not appoint us to wrath. He was comforting them with the truth that they wouldn't see, we won't see any of this time of tribulation. But even beyond that, I think even beyond just being comforted about the future, I think that we can really be encouraged here, right here in the present. Because so often I think it seems that we're just not making that much of a difference. You know, we can look around us and we can see the world spinning seemingly out of control. And it seems like the evil around us increasingly is threatening to overwhelm us. And yet, Based on this prophetic description here, 
of what the world will be like shortly after we're removed and shortly after that influence of the Holy Spirit as he works through us is removed, it surely seems like we are somehow still making a difference. Amen? So after Christians are removed at the rapture, sin is going to run rampant, right? Love will grow cold. And of course, we can look around and we can say that we're starting to see evidence of exactly what happens in a society and in a culture as the witness of the Spirit is increasingly silenced. We look around and we see the way our, you know, that traditional sort of Judeo-Christian ethic is very quickly being replaced by relativism and rationalism of secular humanism, right? This new tolerance is redefining, you know, what was once right is now wrong and what was once wrong is now considered right. We see all of that happening around us and yet, as of now, it's not unchecked. See, the Spirit is still working through us as a preserving force, which Jesus and the Scriptures say is actually what is holding back that complete tide of evil. So be encouraged this morning. We are still making a difference. And based on that, we need to continue to try to minister in any ways that we're able, right? Infusing beauty and bringing hope and reflecting that light of Jesus into the darkness. Wherever it is that you are and in whatever sphere of influence the Lord has given you. Because in the future, the church will be removed Wickedness will be rampaging. The love of people both for God and for each other is going to grow cold. And look what Jesus says in verse 13 and 14. He says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Now I'm super encouraged by these two verses because even with the church out of the picture, the Lord isn't going to leave himself without a witness. And in fact, the book of Revelation tells us that he's going to raise up 144,000 witnesses. Revelation chapter 7 tells us that after the rapture, 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to be anointed and sealed by the Lord. They're going to act as missionaries to the world. And through their efforts, we see that millions, multitudes are going to be saved. The book of Revelation also describes that Moses and maybe even Elijah are going to come back onto the scene and be working miracles and calling down fire from heaven. At one point in the book of Revelation, it says that an angel is going to fly across the sky, telling all of the world, you know, don't be fooled by the Antichrist system and don't take the mark of the beast. So rest assured, Jesus says before the end, the gospel will go out to the entire world. And neither persecution, nor false prophets, nor even this drastic downgrade of society is going to prevent the spread of the gospel. And he says that those who hear it and come to faith, right, those new believers who are on the earth during this terrible period, those who endure in their faith are going to be saved from that devastation that's going to come 
as the Lord comes at the end and delivers them. Now, you may have heard this verse quoted in the sense that we are responsible to evangelize the entire world so that Jesus can come back, right? And that he can't come back until we've done that. But I personally don't believe that that's a correct interpretation of this scripture. Trust me, Jesus will come back at a time that has already been appointed by the Father. Now, absolutely, the gospel is to be preached. And surely, we have the incredible and great privilege of participating in that, profit, that, in that process. And yet, the second coming of Jesus is not dependent upon us. And the truth is, the greatest explosion of evangelism that this planet has ever seen is actually not even going to take place until after we're gone. Which to me just is a reminder that God is faithful and God is still in control with us or without us. So remember, the disciples, all of this started when they asked a very simple question. In verse 3, they said, what's going to be the sign of your coming? Verses 4 through 8, Jesus gave us kind of that overview of the conditions of the world leading up to it. Now here in verses 9 through 14, he said that something different is going to happen. Right? We're going to move from that time of the beginning of sorrows into this first half of the tribulation period. And now here, as we come to verse 15... Jesus is now going to really answer their question. He's going to give us the most observable sign within this period that is going to point to his imminent coming and the end of this age. He says, therefore, verse 15 of Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. So this midpoint mark of that seven-year tribulation is most important because at that time, there's going to be a specific event that takes place that was prophesied centuries before by Daniel, which is precisely what we read as we started out this morning. Essentially, literally, the abomination of desolation speaks of the ultimate desecration of the Jewish temple. It's the establishment of this idolatrous image right there in the holy place itself, in the rebuilt Jewish temple. Remember, although he's going to come across initially as a man of peace, right in the middle of this seven-year peace treaty with Israel, just as we read in 2 Thessalonians, the Antichrist is going to cause some sort of a living statue of himself to be put into the temple. Now, I don't know if that's what it's going to look like. It's a picture that I found. You can blame Google. We know that there's going to be some sort of an image that he's going to put there and that his associate... Right, The false prophet who we read about in Revelation chapter 20 is going to cause the whole earth to bow down and to worship this image and the Antichrist as God. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that if you fail to comply with that, you'll be punished by death. Now we know that Satan has always wanted the world's worship and right here in the middle of the tribulation, 
he's finally going to begin to receive it. And this is the act, Jesus says, that ultimately is going to trigger the final judgments of God, right? It's the abomination that brings the desolation. This single event is of such tremendous importance. Jesus says that it's the installation of that idol is the signal for everybody who knows that the, the great tribulation is about to begin. Now, the great tribulation is a term that Jesus coined, which describes the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Where in the book of Revelation, we see that the judgments really start to intensify and all hell literally is going to break loose on the earth. It's going to be a sign, this idol is going to be an, a sign to the Jews that they have misplaced their faith in a false Messiah. And notice specifically that the Lord wants everybody who sees this prophecy to understand what they're seeing because they've already read about it in the book of Daniel. Now, I love the way Jesus is kind of dropping a breadcrumb here for them. Actually, it's more like a, a loaf of bread for them, right? To these Jews or these tribulation saints who are going to be living during this terrible time, as they've been duped by the Antichrist, they realize their mistake. They'll be directed, no doubt, by faithful witnesses at that time to read Matthew 24 reminding them that what they're seeing happening is precisely what they were told by the Lord and the prophet Daniel would ultimately be happening. And then by reading the prophet Daniel and then by reading what Jesus says next in the next set of verses, these Jews and these tribulation believers are going to know exactly what's happening and exactly what they need to do, which is get out of there. He says, when you see this take place, look at verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who's in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So Jesus is warning these Jews to flee Jerusalem, get out of there. Because we know that this last half of the Great Tribulation is going to end as all the armies of all the nations are assembling against Jerusalem. He's saying also, you know, you who are living there in Jerusalem are going to be right in the line of fire as the fury of the Antichrist is poured out on anybody who refuses to bow down to his image. And notice, each of these warnings are specifically directed to Israelites, right? Not to the church. He says, if you're in Judea, if you're up on the housetop, which they use in that part of the world for uh, you know, patios, on the Sabbath. Well, we don't care if it happens on the Sabbath, right? All of these speak to a Jewish context. Now, interesting, what the prophet Zechariah tells us is that after the abomination of desolation, the Jews are going to flee, but that only a third of them are going to make it to, safely, to safety. Tragically, two-thirds of them are going to be caught in this flood of persecution that follows the Antichrist's declaration of war against them. At this point, the violence and the bloodshed are going to be staggering. And many Bible students believe 
that this remainder of the Jews are going to run from Jerusalem, right, out of Judea into the ancient city of Petra. Now, Petra is located in present-day Jordan, and it's a very mysterious, sort of a miraculous city. Here's a quick description one author said. In approximately 2000 BC, Esau settled in a volcanic crater that was approximately a mile in length. It was an incredibly secure place, for to get into the crater, one had to go through a narrow canyon only 12 feet wide. In many places with a rock face between 200 feet and 1,000 feet high on either side. The entire city could be easily guarded by only 15 soldiers marching along the ridges above its narrow entrance. Thus the descendants of Esau, called the Edomites, dwelt in this city of Petra for centuries, believing they were invincible. Over the years, they constructed an architectural phenomenon. Carved right into the rock are amphitheaters, banks, temples, and an aqueduct system that baffles scientists to this day. The city began to weaken when it was struck with a plague, and eventually the Edomites were wiped out entirely. Now, what's interesting is that for many years, many people heard stories about this rock city of Petra. Teachers would talk about it, and yet in most people's minds, it was only about as real as the lost city of Atlantis, right? It was this kind of mythological place that never actually really existed until 1812, when there was a Bible teacher, or explorer, adventurer, a guy named Johann Burkhardt, he was determined to finally find Petra. And when he did, he couldn't believe what he saw. Because, it, of course, it had been abandoned for centuries and it had, remains desolate even to this day. But he was amazed by the grandeur and the splendor. And perhaps what was most arresting is that right at one of the entrances carved into the rock, it's hard to see from that picture, but there are two huge eagle's wings. And then throughout the city as you go in multiple locations, you find these other carvings of eagles all around the city. Because in the book of Revelation chapter 12, it declares that during this exact end time scenario that Jesus speaks of here, it says, Revelation 12, 14, that the woman, or Israel, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, that's three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent who is Satan. A number of years ago, there was another Bible teacher, William Blackstone, who was so convinced that Petra was going to be the place where the Jews would run and keep safe that in the 1940s, he purchased thousands of Hebrew New Testaments. And he underlined passages like Matthew 24 and Revelation 12, and they placed them in jars, sealed containers, all throughout the city. And his hope was that when the Jews finally get there, the Bibles will be there waiting for them. Don't you love that? And they're going to shelter there with God's word 
as God's wrath is poured out in judgment on the world. For then it says in verse 21, there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So this final three and a half years, right, after the Antichrist reveals his true nature, after the Jews flee to the wilderness, it's going to be a time of disaster and destruction and death unlike any other in human history. If you read the book of Revelation, it, de- it def- describes these judgment judgments as they're poured out. There's going to be plagues, boils, all the sea life dying, rivers, waters, sources turning to blood, heat that scorches the earth, thick darkness that takes over the planet, men crying out for death just in relief to the suffering, wicked spirits then that are going to draw all the nations to array themselves in battle at Armageddon. It talks about global earthquakes. It talks about 100-pound hailstones. There's no question that the awful character of the Great Tribulation, I don't think that anybody could firmly grasp just how bad it's going to be. And that's quite a statement when we think of the terrible wars and the plagues and the famines, the genocide that we've seen throughout human history. And yet when God pours out his wrath fully and finally on a God-rejecting world, it will truly be great tribulation. But I want you to notice this. It will also be measured tribulation. So what I mean by that, it, it, this, this isn't like God is in some kind of out-of-control rage. Because notice Jesus says that unless the days were shortened, or unless they were contained, or numbered, specified, unless that happened, no one would survive them. He says the entire world would be annihilated if these things were allowed co- to continue. But God will shorten those days. For the sake of his elect. And these days are actually numbered for us. Both by Daniel in chapter 12. And by John in the book of Revelation chapters 11 and 12. As actually 1,260 days. Which you won't be surprised to hear. right? Is three and a half years. If you count it according to 30 day months according to the ancient Jewish calendar. And what's really interesting to me is that actually would make that whole period shorter by more than a couple weeks at least than the full time if we calculated the years based on 365 days the way we do today. And he does this, Jesus says, as an act of mercy for the sake of the elect. Right? The Jews and any Gentiles during that time who are converted. And it's important to me, I think, as we read and as we consider the events of the tribulation, you know, during the, the tribulation and, and especially this great tribulation, it's important that we maintain our perspective. Because the tribulation period signifies and it brings judgment on mankind collectively. But notice that even during that time, 
people can repent individually. Right? Even in the midst of his wrath, God is still going to be searching to save the souls of the rebellious through all of these witnesses and through these miracles of Moses and Elijah and the angels. He's trying to get individual men and women to turn and to be saved from eternal destruction. Then Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, he says, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. He says, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So during this time, world conditions are going to be so terrible. People are going to wonder if relief is ever going to become. And that makes the perfect scenario for these false spiritual leaders to come on the scene and say, Hey, we found the Messiah. He's out here in the desert or, you know, he's over here or he's over there. Jesus says, don't believe any of them. Because he says, when I truly come, it's going to be like lightning. It's going to be obvious to everyone. Now, understand this. When Jesus comes for the church at the rapture, before the tribulation, we've seen he's going to come in the air in the twinkling of the eye and his people are going to be caught up to meet him there. It's very different when he returns seven years later with the church to the earth at his second coming at the end of the tribulation that is going to be a great public event and Jesus says that every eye will see him and I think Jesus points to here what the book of Revelation says is going to be the very final earthly event that precedes his return and that's the gathering of these Gentile nations to war against one another at Armageddon right here in the valley of of Megiddo in Israel. In fact, a lot of people believe that that reference there in verse 28 to the birds that are flying around the carcasses is a picture of the awful carnage and the incalculable number of corpses that are going to result from this great battle. In fact, most translations use the word vultures rather than eagles, which is probably more fitting. Still other people believe, and I think it's fitting also, that that you know, that it points to this entire world system, right? That through all this pride and pomposity and, and, you know, ultimately is nothing more than a dead carcass to the Lord. Jesus says, don't be deceived. He says, when I return to set up this righteous kingdom, it's going to be unmistakable. It's going to be unmissable, if you will. <laughs> it's going to be public. It's going to be universal and it's going to be glorious. And like this lightning, it's going to be instantly, clearly visible to everybody. And it's going to be accompanied by these other unmissable signs. Look at verse 29 and 30. Because it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. 
Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they that see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now in Joel chapter 3, it tells us there, there's going to be these disturbances in the heavens. That the, his coming, you know, he's here. Now we're not told specifically what the sign of his coming is, but we are specifically told that all the people on the earth at that time are going to recognize it. Now some return, as we've talked, some believe, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, that it's the return of the Shekinah glory, right? And just in the same way that the, the Shekinah glory exited the temple as a sign that God was setting Israel aside, that we're going to see that Shekinah glory again in the heavens as a sign that the Lord is back to regather them. Now, what we do know is that when he appears, it's going to cause all the nations to mourn, most likely because they will realize, they're going to know at that time that the time of their judgment has come. Can you even imagine this? Right? The one who was spit upon and was crucified is now vindicated as the Lord of life and of glory. Here we have the meek and lowly Jesus is now Jehovah himself. We have that lamb is finally descending as this conquering lion or this despised carpenter of Nazareth is returning now as the king of kings and the Lord of lords because he will come in power and in splendor. And this is the moment that all of creation has been groaning for, Paul says, for thousands of years. And yet this event, we also know, is going to have a very special meaning for Israel, and they're going to mourn for him for a very special reason. Because Zechariah says that when Israel looks at Jesus at his return, and they see the wounds in his hands, that they're going to say, what are these wounds between your hands? And he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And yet in spite of all of this, it also says in Zechariah, Jesus says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, what? The spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So Jesus is going to return at the very moment when Israel is about to be defeated by the Gentile armies. And instead of pouring out wrath on them for their rejection of him, he's going to pour out his grace upon them. And he's going to rescue his people and they're going to recognize him as their Messiah. And the Bible says there's going to be a time of this national repentance and cleansing and restoration as they're all gathered under this gracious leadership of the Messiah. Verse 31 says that he'll send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. and They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So from all across the planet, right, to all these places that they've been scattered because of the persecution of the last seven years. All of those who become believers during this period, right, during the 70th week of Daniel, they're all going to be gathered together. It's like those who've received the kingdom message are now being gathered together to meet 
their king because just at, at long last, right, just as the scriptures have predicted, the throne of David is now going to be set up again in Jerusalem. And that's the place from where Christ will reign in righteousness for the next thousand years, as we see in Revelation chapter 20. Now today's text, admittedly, is yet another heavy text. <laughs> and yet I, I really think that it leaves us with a super encouraging thought. And you guys know that the prophet Habakkuk, at another time of impending judgment upon the Jewish people, it was right before they were carried away captive to Babylon, at one point, he cried out to the Lord. He knew that they were deserving of the judgment that was coming, but he appealed to the Lord anyway that that time might be shortened. He says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. And we see that God did. Because instead of the Babylonians coming in and completely decimating and destroying the Jewish people, instead they carried them away captive to Babylon. Some even remained there where they were allowed to continue. And eventually we know that all the Jews returned to their land after that 70 years of chastening was over. And here again, in the end time, seven years, God remembers mercy in his dealings with his people, Israel, even throughout this coming 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. You know, he's bringing righteous judgment on a world that has rejected him and rejected his son, and yet we watch with amazement at the great care that he takes, even in the face of their rebellion, the way that he protects and preserves and sustains and provides for them so that all of those promises that he made to them come true. You know, the, the Jews had completely departed from God's ways and even by the mouths of their own prophets, they were deserving of their punishment and yet there was still hope. And this morning, we need to remember that our lives are no different, right? That God remembers mercy. See, it's, it's only through God's mercy that we're not absolutely consumed by our own sin. It's only by God's mercy that we've, any of us, received his son. It's only, as it says in Psalm 103, it's only because the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in mercy. It's only because of that that any of us are able to stand at all. So after we read a text like this morning, I hope that it encourages us that even in the face of whatever it is that we are facing, and even when we're sure of nothing else in this life, we can always remember God's mercy. We can always remember that he has sworn to never leave us nor to forsake us, and that he's called us into this new life in his Son. And we can come to the Lord each day and seek his mercy and ask him to continue that work in us so that in the days to come, in whatever time we have left, that he might be glorified in our lives and glorified in our hearts. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And we thank you that even in the difficult times, Lord, that we... Um,
try to understand the things that are coming, Lord. Um, we do pray that you would help us to remember, Lord, that you're merciful. It's part of your character, Lord. It's one of your attributes. It's it's who you are, Lord, and we know that you, you can't deny yourself. So, Father, we just pray, Lord, that as we, uh, as we continue to worship you this morning, Lord, that you would make that truth evident to each one of our hearts. And, Lord, help us, more importantly, to carry it with us out of this place, Lord, that as we're facing trial and difficulty this week, Lord, whatever the tribulation is, though it's not the great tribulation, Lord, we know that it's tribulation for us. And we pray that in the midst of it, we would remember that you are merciful. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.